It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hello and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in. I'm Joe McCormick. And I'm Lauren Volkebaum. And our regular host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today. He is out prowling the grounds of CES, or he might actually be on an airplane at the moment, coming back home. Uh, Resting from his journalistic predatory uh, technology. Right. It is well-deserved rest. I think he has been working his little heart out out there. Uh But anyway, today we're joined by a special guest co-host, our friend and co-worker, Christian. Christian, introduce yourself. Hey guys, I'm Christian Sager. I'm a writer and host here at How Stuff Works. I started out working on Stuff of Genius, one of our shows, and I'm currently a writer with these guys on both Brain Stuff and What the Stuff. Those are two of our video shows. Video shows. It is a distinct pleasure to have you with us today, Christian. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Especially since we're going to be talking about various features of destruction and decay. And that's really what we think about when we think of you. It's what I associate mostly with your face. It makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) No, no, no. Not the pockmarks and the age. (laughs) Oh, that was no, 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 not not your face as a decaying thing. But like um, next to those concepts sort of in the dictionary, there's the idea of Christian Sager. That's accurate. You are pretty metal. So I'm probably I mean, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but I'm probably the most metal person at House of Works. Well, we are glad that we could have you here to to talk about ruins and the future of ruins. Right. Ruins. I mean, usually we don't get to talk about ruins on a podcast about the future because ruins are something we associate with the past. Mm -hmm. But since we are talking about ruins, I thought it would be the only occasion I ever get to read Percy Bysshe Shelley on the Forward Thinking podcast. So we will begin with a short reading of Ozymandias by P.B. Shelley. Do it. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command 
tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. On the pedestal these words appear, My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Yeesh. Nicely done. Yeah, thank yeah. you thank for you. that depressing you just introduction. just won the poetry slam. And uh, <laughs> I also, th- that, if Shelley was alive today, he would totally be the singer in a black metal band. I know, it is very black metal. It's, like, it's very serious yeah. and death and destruction and time washes everything away but it's also got a kind of great cheesy dust in the wind quality to it <laughs> yeah so yes yeah, part black metal part kansas yeah yeah well and i like the schadenfreude to it too like it's it's very much like like sucker look at that guy <laughs> well i like how the line look on my works you mighty and despair takes on an ironic double meaning uh i believe in the way the the king, I think he's referring to the Egyptian King Ramses II, also known as Ozymandias. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's saying to the other kings, like, look at this stuff I've built. You it's really great stuff. Yeah, you can't build anything like this. You should despair. But really, to the reader, it starts to take on the idea of time. We're all going to look on his works in despair because this happens to all of us. Everybody yeah. ends Even up the in the... Even the greatest of us fall the, to dust. Yeah, the lone and level sands where we get... Brought down by time. Now, this may sound like kind of a bleak place to begin a podcast about the future. (laughs) And so it's not going to be all death and destruction. We wanted to look at the physical features of civilization and imagine what they're going to look like in the future. What what will the cities of today look like in 500 years, a thousand years, 2000 years from the present? What will future humans see if they visit the ruins that are to them what the ruins of ancient Rome are to us? Yeah. And so how would you like to start with that, Joe? First, let's limit the scope a little bit of what we're talking about here. Like, let, let's put out some definitions. Okay. So if we're going to try to imagine the future ruins of modern civilization, we should sort of define our terms. And one of the first things I want to get out of the way is the definition of civilization, because sometimes the word civilization can take on a a value judgment connotation, like a thing that is civilized Mm -hmm. is good. A thing that's uncivilized is like impolite or improper. You know, you'd say, oh, my friend Johnny, he's always urinating in public. That's uncivilized behavior. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, she doesn't serve that kind of tea in her home. How uncivilized. Right, right. Or, as Henry Rollins has been known to say, you're so civilized, you get brutalized. (laughs) Oh, yes. Good Uh, examples all. That is not at all the way we mean the word here. We mean civilization more in the historical or archaeological sense, which has a lot of connotations, but overall denotes a settled lifestyle in densely populated urban areas, or in a word, cities, city life. Uh, And in fact, the English word city and civilization, I think both have their root in the same Latin terms, like civitatum or civitas, which, from what I can tell, it has kind of an abstract and complex definition, but it has to do with being a citizen or the citizenry. And what does that have to do with ruins? Well, most, though certainly not all, ruins as we experience them today come from these larger civilizations as opposed to the less populous and less civilized in this sense cultures, cultures that don't build large monuments. Or large buildings, you know, uh, right. Certainly, yeah. Certainly, right, yeah. F- functional or artistic, either one. Um, and, you know, uh, by which we, what we really mean is that it's easier for people to kind of trip across a 450-foot-tall pyramid um, than even very complex systems of roads or irrigation that might be buried under a few layers of sediment in, the, in a desert somewhere. Sure. Um, and we are getting better at the latter, by the way, and there's some really interesting research going into that through like new satellite imaging techniques and other technologies. But that is a subject for an entirely different podcast. Yeah, that's interesting that it brings up the issue of that there's sort of a differential survival rate for different physical remnants of mm-hmm. society. So you have some things that we build in our cities that are still easily visible 
hundreds of years in the future and other things that you might be able to find evidence of if you're really looking for it, but the average person wouldn't necessarily notice it. Yeah. Depending on the maintenance of those artifacts. On right. the maintenance and also on uh, just the climate and other other surroundings. But we will get into those in, in a minute. And yeah, so... but l- let's define what ruins are the same <laughs> yeah. way we defined what civilization is. That's a good plan. Yeah, there are actually a lot of interesting theories of ruins, of, you know, ruination theory. That'd be a wonderful, like, sub-specialization that you could study. Mm-hmm. I wish I could say I was an expert on ruination. I'm not, though. <laughs> if I could go back and start my education over, I might go down that path. Yeah. But anyway, in the general sense, ruins are sort of what's left behind when human-made structures are partially destroyed or they just fall out of the cycle of use and maintenance. So if a if a building is very old, but you're still using it daily and living and working and shopping in it, and you're making repairs, fixing cracks, maybe replacing parts of it. You probably wouldn't call that an example of ruins, even if it's very old. Yeah. On the other hand, ruins tend to be things that people might visit, but they don't remain in use and kept up through maintenance. Mm-hmm. So there's this piece that uh, I came across when we were doing our research, which was uh, in National Geographic, and they did a trio of blog posts called A Dialogue of Civilizations Conference. It was in Guatemala in 2013, so apparently it was like their uh, notes based on the conference. Okay. Mm -hmm. And they talked – they had a whole section that was all about the ancient past as a window to the future, looking at ruins and, and thinking about this very concept. And one of the things that they came up with in that was that they think of ruins as being emblems of our vanity. They are basically uh, not just that, but that they are also signs of whatever civilization they represent, part of their identity or their ideology. Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to keep in mind as we're talking about ruins today, like or the ruins of the future in particular, how are they emblematic of our vanity as a culture or our particular ideologies. Right. You you can feel almost the desire to be worshipped emanating from many of the monuments and ruins of old. You see like the pyramids of Giza, at least for me, when I look at something like that, it radiates this sense of somebody wanting to be seen as powerful. Mm-hmm. It's the idea of immortality through... Uh, through an artifact through that's construction, going to last yeah, longer yeah. than you will or even your legacy. Yeah. And so whatever it is that's so important to you that you want to make it big enough to last. So if you think about the modern day equivalent of something like a pyramid or the Arc de Triomphe or something that shows off the, the power, the splendor, the glory of the civilization, what is that today? Well, I mean, just off the top of my head, we we are in Atlanta right now and looking out the window, what I see are skyscrapers and malls mm-hmm. and public transportation hubs, a lot of cars, a lot of highways. These are the things that we seem to venerate nowadays. They're not necessarily built to last in the way that the pyramids were. Right. Um, maybe like for Atlanta in particular, one of the things I always think about is the stuff that they built downtown when the Olympics were here in the nineties so there's stuff like that that is probably meant to last. But what else? What do you guys think? You know, what I think of is I, I think of uh, public use areas like yeah. sports stadiums. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And oh. things like that. Th- yeah. Those to me shout a kind of and I and I don't know if the way in which they're physically constructed means they'll actually last longer than any other type of building. They might sure. not, but they at least speak to me like this is a uh it it seems to embody values and yeah. to scream power projection. They're the Colosseum <laughs> of our time. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also, also very large. Like we've got a Six Flags just outside of Atlanta here. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I'm Ruins not sure. of roller coasters. Uh, they're they're beautiful. I don't uh, know if you've ever seen any of the images I, from Coney Island, but I have. I've been to Coney Island uh-huh. and uh, haunted. Well, so uh, the cyclone is the uh, world's maybe the world. It might just be the United States' most oldest roller coaster, and uh, most oldest. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, that's <laughs> a scientific term. Yes. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's terrifying. I've ridden on it. It's just wood and nails. <laughs> Well, how do you ride on it now? They just put you in a paper bag and push you down the top hill. (laughs) 
Yeah. 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 Well, they'd strap bit, wheels to your arms and legs. It's a little bit oh, bumpy, yeah. but uh, yeah. yeah. No, it's it's really scary. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing that seems to be suggested by the idea of ruins is something about decline, because w- with lots of the structures we have, I mean, on their own, they could fall into disrepair and become ruins, but we keep them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, so what leads to people not being able to keep up their structures? Well, it assumes, I think, like one of two things probably that we can boil it down to that there is either the civilization has either gotten to a point where it's mismanaging its structures so much that it's neglecting them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, or there is some kind of external force that has come in and in has done damage to it, like and, in and, war, for instance. And perhaps there's been um, some kind of event that has forced the population to move to a new area, something climate related, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. That's the other thing that sort of touches on what I wanted to add to complicate this. I don't think it's necessarily always mismanagement, though, that can be part of it, because there can also be just the fact that people don't care about certain things. Wholesale anymore. up and leaving the stuff. Uh, yeah. 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 Or, or perhaps, um, for example, when coal production fell to oil production, a, a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of places were kind of abandoned because those factories were not or those mining towns were not necessary. Oh, anymore. Are we going to jump ahead? Because uh, one of these places that we were going to talk about is exactly that. No, we'll save it for. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll save it. Minutes. Yeah, we can we can reference back right. in a second. Spoilers. We're going to talk about coal. <laughs> Just one more distinction that might be interesting is the difference between what we would often call ruins and then something more like monuments. And they can sort of bleed together, but I just wanted to think about the fact that you wouldn't always look at something like the pyramids of Giza and call that ruins. Oh, right, because nobody lived there. Right. Well, I mean, people might have camped out there. I don't know. But well, sure. <laughs> but like, it's like, generally meant as like a thing to behold. What not about so much... some of these other ones that like we think of as wonders of the world? So the pyramid is one of them, right? What about like the hanging gardens of Babylon? Uh, well, as far the funny thing about that is, I think it's disputed whether the hanging gardens of Babylon actually existed, from what I recall. Yeah. But yeah, there are plenty of monuments and things like yeah. you could look at like Mount Rushmore or. Things right. like that. If if after a long time, Mount Rushmore becomes sort of eroded and it's not maintained, would you call that a ruin? Not I don't really. know. But, but you'd call Machu Picchu a ruin, right? Certainly, yeah. Sure. Or um, if for some reason everyone had to flee Paris and, and um, Notre Dame was still standing, you could call that a ruin. Yeah. So I don't know exactly what the dividing line is there, but I think today we want to talk about both. I mean, we want to talk about monuments and the things you'd more traditionally call ruins. Mm -hmm. Uh, The structures we build that without maintenance can fall into disrepair. Yes, although it is certainly uh, anthropologically interesting that these days some of our largest and most impressive structures are not something of, of religious and cultural significance like the pyramids, but rather something of uh, practical cultural significance like the Hoover Dam. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Right. Like uh, also like the Golden Gate Bridge. That's probably one of the things that will although we'll talk about this later, how long bridges will last after mm-hmm. humans or or stop taking care of them. But that's probably something that people would look back on as being a, a ruin or a relic of humanity. Yeah. And then there are there are, of course, structures that are not really lived in spaces, but they're also not really monuments of symbolic significance, or at least not entirely that. They have some kind of practical use, like, say, the Roman aqueducts or the Great Wall of China. I think, Christian, you've actually been to the Great Wall of China, haven't you? Yeah, it was a long time ago, uh, over 20 years ago. But uh, yeah, I, I, I spent some time in Beijing when I was younger. Uh, and uh, the Great Wall is fascinating because it was essentially designed as like a defense mechanism against different invaders. Heard uh, it didn't work very well. Right. Well, <laughs> and then, it, you know, it was multiple walls that over the course of various empires were redesigned and linked up together, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, it, it's been neglected for over 300 years now and a lot of it's in disrepair. However, at the same time, because it is, I don't know necessarily that's a ruin, but because it's a monument, it's one of those things that is a tourist attraction as mm-hmm. well. And the tourism industry that comes to the Great Wall of China helps in the deterioration of it. I myself, 20 years ago, uh, when I was 
uh, but a boy, uh, carved my initials in the Great Wall of China. Oh, for no. Classy, classy. Yeah, yeah. It's not the kind of decision I would make today. Well, but, that's, yeah. that's good to hear. But... I probably would have done something like that when I was a kid. Mm. I, yeah. oh, I was 37. Boys are, <laughs> what's wrong with us? Uh, we, we all want to leave our mark, which is really what all of this podcast is about. Um, uh, th- though, though I would argue that, that stuff like tourism, um, although it does degrade these structures at a certain point just through normal wear and tear, and in addition to things like vandalism, you also wind up having governments um, looking at these structures as being a useful monetary agent and therefore having a, you know making the decision to to restore and repair them yeah. right or to yeah. to at least protect them yes yes to Our, make uh, it a crime to these, do what christian and, did and also oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 and the funds from the tourism industry will probably go into their restoration whereas if people weren't visiting it there wouldn't there be wouldn't any. be that fund yeah. yeah okay well let's transition from thinking about these ancient to modern ruins to thinking about modern ruins that got their ruination started really recently. Uh, yeah, because there are a few places on this planet, as populated as it tends to be, uh, that, that we can call ruins, like right now, today, that were created less than a century ago. Okay, and I want to start with one that if you've never looked at pictures of Pripyat, Ukraine, go pause this and go Google it right now. Uh, that, that's, that's the Chernobyl site. Yes. Okay, are you back? So Pripyat, Ukraine, was a city that was evacuated due to the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster in 1986 when uh, they had a major meltdown and lots of dangerous radiation was released. They had to abandon the area, and it has been uninhabited by humans ever since. So that's been like 29 years now, almost 30 years. Yeah, we're closing in on the 30-year mark. So what happens in a place like that where there's been nobody to keep up the repair, the maintenance, the weeding, the <laughs> all the things we need to do to keep a city functioning like it normally does. I think what one happened? of the things that's fascinating about that from what I read in the research is that despite the uh, nuclear incident, that there is still uh, pervasive plant life there that is growing mm. through the structures and, and, and breaking them apart. Yeah, I think it's very interesting. So we should think about this place as a complete dead zone. It's been tainted by nuclear radiation. Uh, you know, it, it, this should be just a poisoned place that's become like the moon. Or at least we would imagine that. But then when you actually look at it, it's almost like a nature preserve now. Yeah. They, they report that lots of species have bounced back there. Right. Like one of the things that I was reading was that uh, you wouldn't normally see like particular species of wolves in the civilized, still populated areas around there, but that they're very prevalent within the ruins of this town. That's funny. It's like our presence is more poisonous than a radiation leak. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. c- certainly to, to lots of parts of nature. Um, but but humans are certainly not going to go back in there anytime particularly soon. You can contrast that with the kind of conditions that you see in other places, like, for example, Hashima Island, a.k.a. Gunkanjima, which is an island off of Japan that was kind of famously used as a set piece for the most recent James Bond movie, Skyfall. It was that creepy abandoned city where the bad guy's hanging out. Yeah, yeah. Javier Bardem gets all up on Daniel Craig in one of the buildings. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and what's fascinating about it in the real world, not in the film... Is that, uh, spoilers, here we go. It was a coal mining production facility. So this island was populated largely by, uh, Korean forced laborers. Yeah, who, Korean and Chinese forced laborers. Yeah. And this was going on largely, I believe, in the 1920s through the 50s. I think it was shut down circa 1950 to 59. Yeah, I think that, uh, the last people left the island in the early 70s, I read, because mm-hmm. petroleum had basically taken over the industry from coal and there was no longer a need for them to run the island the way they were. So what do the structures actually look like now? Ah, uh, well, all the all the glass is gone. The the concrete is kind of starting to erode. All of the wooden bits that were on the outsides of the structures, forming um, and any kind of like like lattice work or porches or things like that, have all fallen to the ground. 
um, it's it's desolate. It's also super dangerous from what I was reading. Oh, because, yeah. Because uh, like Skyfall, they actually only used exterior shots for the uh, stuff that they shot there because the production crew deemed it too dangerous to shoot on the island. Yeah, certainly with principal actors. Yeah, they, they recreated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, we're, we're we'll Daniel Craig guys and Javier Bardem. They, they can't go to this island. But, you know, extras, yeah, we can probably get them there. Yeah. Uh, um, no, they, the they, uh, they, they recreated one of the courtyards on, on the Pinewood Studios sets out in the UK in order to, to film the scenes that you see of them standing there. So, um, Hollywood magic, y'all. Back to this island. Yeah. Uh, well, that's, I. There's this really cool thing I want to mention about the oh. island is that there's a stairway within the ruins that goes up to the, the like highest point on the island, which is like a rooftop shrine. Mm-hmm. And you can see all of the ruined structures from there. Mm-hmm. The stairway is called the stairway to hell. Yeah. And it, it requires like special permits. Like they basically only let a very few people go out to the island at all because it's so dangerous. And you have to have a second special permit to climb the stairway to hell. All right. So before we get into the, our our third example here, let's pause for a second. How stoked would you guys be to go to that island? <laughs> So stoked, like the most stoked. I would be. Would Javier Bardem be there when no. we got there? I mean, he'll, he he drives be... the boat, but you don't. Oh, okay. He's not there with you. But also Chernobyl. I'm kind of fascinated oh, yeah. by like, I would totally, I mean, if I could, go there. Yeah, yeah. If if I could go there relatively safely, then then it would yeah. be. Well, I mean, I mean, I, Hashima Island is, is a little bit of a weird situation because it was... I, it, it was a death camp. I mean, it, it was, right, it was absolutely. a yeah. very, very terrible place for very many people. Um, but there's uh, something what I'm getting at here is there's something inherently compelling about these ruined structures that seem to fascinate us as human beings. Yeah. People have been into the idea of ruins for a long time. I mean, you could see that it's not recent. It's something that, mm-hmm. you know, medieval and Renaissance people were obsessed with the ruins of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And you could see it in in the Romantic period. I think that was a big thing. Like yeah. the Romantic writers were really into the ruins of castles and Gothic mm-hmm. ruins. Oh, and, and also when um when Egyptology became really popular in the Victorian era or so, it it became so posh to. St- I mean, it, it has always been in certain circuits of the world very posh to go into old ruins of places and take stuff and put it in your house. Um, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, but that maybe that offends our sensibilities today because we've got our own feelings about what should be done with ruins. Like oh, sure, I mean, sure. we have this current sensibility that no, 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 ruins need to be preserved as if there was like a certain point where it's like, well, now they are in their natural state and we can't alter them from this point on <laughs> when tons <laughs> of stuff has happened to them already. Yeah. You know, in fact, some people have even been so obsessed with the idea of ruins and this kind of romantic notion of ruins that they've planned what's known as ruin value into the initial construction of buildings. Like when they're making new buildings, they say you should think about how this will look when it falls into disuse in hundreds or thousands of years. Uh, Unfortunately, (laughs) one of the main names that gets associated with this idea of ruin value is Albert Speer, who was a uh, German architect who was a, a Nazi in Hitler's government, who, I mean, you could argue to what extent this idea of ruin value is inherently associated with fascism or Nazism. Uh, but but I think one of the things that's fascinating about him that you and I were talking about earlier is that apparently none of the structures that he had planned around this philosophy of ruin value really lasted or were, or were built because of... The war. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is interesting to think about. He, he, in this book, tells this story of how, you know, he was seeing a building demolished because a bu- one building was being demolished to make room for this, uh, I believe, Zeppelin landing field that he wanted to build. And as he saw sort of the guts of the building being torn out, he saw these steel girders and it was just like, that is hideous. Right. I mean, that is just awful. We should build buildings with stone. So that when they fall apart, it will be this beautiful organic falling apart rather than this ugly mangled falling apart. So once again, we're going back to emblems of vanity and legacies of men who want to be remembered forever. Well, it's also a, a, a cultural value judgment on the particular beauty of, of different objects. And, and right. I, I would argue that if he had existed in a postmodern 
artistic culture that perhaps he would have felt differently about uh, about the beauty of steel rebar. Sure. But, sure. And it might be what some people would accuse this of being sort of the, the inherent Nazism of this idea of ruin value, because yeah. it's this idea that you're going to have this huge, you know, Reich that lasts forever and mm-hmm. it must be remembered as glorious. And it must have a certain aesthetic value. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's not talk about Nazis too much, shall we? Let's instead talk about. North Korea. Yeah, they're far better. (laughs) So uh, the third example that we have to talk about as being a sort of modern day, quote unquote, ruin is the Korean DMZ, the demilitarized zone between North Korea and South Korea. Um, So so real quick, some facts. It's uh, 155 miles long. It's 2.5 miles wide. It's basically mountainous area. And uh, before it was the DMZ, it was populated by rice farmers who had their paddy fields out there and who were basically living there and working the land. I mean, for like 5,000 years. Yeah. Like this was a, a civilization for a very long time. Yeah. So I wonder what of that kind of settled area remains after you've removed human life from it. Well, so it, it's interesting. Um, one of the guys that we were researching who's done a lot of homework on this stuff, Alan Wiseman, actually went there and was checking it out as part of his research into what happens to civilized areas after human beings are removed from them. And uh, the interesting thing is that it's basically gone back to being this strip of land that you can barely discern as having been populated by human beings. And that's just in like 60 years, right? Yeah, something like that. Uh, It's just marshland now and that there's just been these uh, a large push of cranes have come back into the area and repopulated the area. Oh, you mean the birds? The, yeah, not <laughs> not, yeah, not, yeah, not yeah. the machines. The yeah, yeah, these cranes. these white. I, I believe I think the they red, prob- red crested both, cranes. Right? Both both sides would probably have major problems with actual cranes, like mechanical cranes driving through the DMC. I like how to us the mechanical cranes are the actual cranes. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> birds. Neither of you grew up in Florida. I Stupid can tell. birds. Uh, well, okay. Well, let's look at what a couple of people have actually said about how the civilizations of today are going to decay in the future. Uh, first, I think we can just run through a quick list of all the different things you have to consider mm-hmm. about what's going to happen to structures, because it doesn't have to be just a bomb, say, right. or a tornado that takes down a building. You've got things like the freezing and thawing cycle. This is something Alan Weissman, we just mentioned a second ago, and we're going to mention again in a minute, uh, something he talks about. Uh, uh, that's he... that's when, um, due to the heating and cooling over the course of a year or a season, uh, water will freeze and then thaw. And as we all know, one of those spectacular properties of water is that it expands when it freezes. So mm-hmm. if it happens to be in, in a crack in wood or cement or anything else porous like that, it will expand, pushing the material outward. And then when it thaws and leaves the material, it leaves a crack. It's like yeah. when you get frost heaves on the highway. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen those before? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, that's not the only weathering you have. You have wind erosion. You have water erosion. You could have water rain. damage mm-hmm. from flooding and from rain. Mm-hmm. You could have fires. I mean, fires aren't something that's just set by a kid playing with matches. Even if an area is uninhabited, it can have fires affecting it because lightning can strike. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Weissman's whole thing is that after a couple of years, there'll be so much buildup of vegetation and dead leaves from the continual cycles that one lightning strike could set an entire city on fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's plant growth. That was something that we read about affecting Pripyat Ukraine, actually, mm-hmm. is you might not think about this often, but over time, the growth of, say, roots through the ground can displace a building oh, and yeah, break yeah. it apart. Yeah, I mean, you've probably seen this on a small scale on, on sidewalks when the tree's roots have grown up under a sidewalk and caused it to go all wonky. Yeah. and the... It's a scientific term. <laughs> Of course, you can have animal invasions, human damage of all kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it doesn't. It's not just when we leave it alone. It's also sometimes when we mess with it that things go wrong. Oh, sure, sure. Either from right. I mean, hu- human damage can can be from bombings or from um, from chemical decomposition due to various stuff that we've put into the atmosphere, or uh, or due to uh, intentional vandalism. Yeah. 
Well, let, let's go straight to Weissman now. So this yeah. guy named Alan Weissman wrote a book called The World Without Us. I think it came out in 2007. That sounds about right. And he did uh, an interview with, I believe it was Scientific American, where, you, you know, it was, it was like a press tour basically promoting the book, where he talked about the basic tenets of the uh, what he was proposing in the book. And then also uh, he wrote a piece himself for Discover Magazine that was essentially like a long abstract of the book. Oh, yeah. cool. And so his basic premise for the book is, if all the humans on Earth just were to to immediately disappear, just vanished, just poof and vanish, what would happen to the Earth? And a lot of what he talks about is environmental, but we wanted to focus on what he said about the structures we've created and the kind of ruins that would be left behind. Yeah, because he really delves into those causes that you just mentioned of, yeah. of damage. Um, one, the first one, he really looked at Manhattan very closely as a as like a case study. Mm-hmm. And and one of the first things that he noted, which I I would have not known this at all, and I've been to New York a lot, is that there would immediately be water damage because. There's so much water being pumped away from Manhattan because of rainfall and groundwater and local streams that if humanity was gone within like days, it would lead to flooding and underground corrosion. I had no idea about this either. Yeah, he yeah. was talking about how much water is constantly pumped out of the subway system. Right, mm-hmm. right. It, it was just unbelievable. Yeah. And then his second example is the fires we were talking about earlier. So he sees that. I think his his number is like five years within five years of humanity leaving like an urban area like Manhattan. There would be enough buildup of leaves and tall grass that if lightning hit in just the right way, it could set all the roofs of all the buildings on fire. And the next thing he talks about is the plant growth. So he's talking about the flora that's going to grow up in around, in and around Manhattan that will ultimately take over and, like we were talking about before, break apart the buildings. Mm-hmm. He yeah. actually got really specific about that, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he did, yeah. <laughs> I, I was curious about exactly, like, how strong can that plant invasion be? Very strong. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, according to him, here's a direct quote. I like this. Sweet carrots would quickly devolve to their wild form. <laughs> And there would be unpalatable Queen's Anne lace. <gasps> the horrors. White broccoli. No, wild broccoli. Cabbage. Cab- broccoli, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, and cauliflower would regress to their unrecognizable broccoli ancestor. Oh, man. It sounds and like so that... basically it's like wild broccoli that would just be tearing buildings apart. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this should be an Attack of the Killer Tomatoes sequel like that. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh so so what about uh what about wildlife coming in? Yeah, to so eat all these uh unmentionable carrots. He he was yeah, right. <laughs> He's speculating about uh the the feral animals that would eventually show up. And if I'm remembering correctly, because I can't see it in my notes right now, I think he it was that rats would be the first that would like immediately overpopulate and just cover the city. And then you would get feral dogs from the leftover uh, pets that were left behind. That, this is assuming like humans just like disappear rapture style, I guess. Mm-hmm. But, but that all other animals were hanging out. Yeah, exactly. That they would all stick around. And so feral dogs would also dominate the city. He didn't mention feral cats. And I was kind of wondering about that. I wonder why. Do you guys have any ideas? Um, cats hate Manhattan. It's, oh, it's well is that known. it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So they would all go to the. They would all go to Cat Heaven Island. To Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. I I think they're they're Connecticut animals really. Okay. Uh and and um uh his other thing was was wolves obviously. Uh, that wolves uh-huh. would start to close in and that there would eventually be like fights between these feral dogs and wolves. Oh no. Yeah. And I'm sure that the the interaction, I think that some of what he was talking about here was was that the interaction of all of these things, the the freeze cycle and the animals and the plant life. I mean because Animals are going to eat plants and deposit seeds. Sorry, uh, yeah. And also, like, we need to consider as well that, like, these, what we what we would consider from our perspective now, they would be invasive species, right? Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. they would be coming in and destroying these structures, just doing their daily things, such right, as right. making homes out of them or, like, leaving waste behind. And I can bring some knowledge from one of the episodes that I've previously written for our uh, show Brain Stuff oh, yeah. about raccoons, how raccoons do this in Japan. <laughs> Uh, they've been destroying temples throughout Japan for the last, like, I think 30 years, uh, because there was a, inv- inv- 
invasion isn't really the right word. They were imported to Japan, and there's so many raccoons there now, and they can't control the population. Well, it's pets, right? Yeah. Uh, they, they were imported as pets, and then people realize that they're terrible, creepy pets. And well, yeah, and they imported it, them as pets because there was a cartoon about a raccoon right. that made everybody want to have a pet raccoon. Uh, Don't have a pet raccoon, kids. Don't do it. it go to brainstuffshow.com, uh, <laughs> and you can watch me talk on video about why you shouldn't have a pet <laughs> raccoon. But anyways... In in the same way, all these other animals would do the same thing. They would destroy mm -hmm. these structures over time. You know, I'm curious. So we've talked about the different things that will be destroying the structures. Uh, and I, I wanted to add one more thing. If you don't believe that plant roots w can destroy stone buildings, just go Google pictures of the interior of the Angkor Wat temple in Cambodia, mm. where there are these tree roots that are moving these huge stones. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, I wanted to think about what structures would remain in Manhattan. Like, so you, you've got all these forces acting to destroy the things humans have built. What's going to be there the longest? Well, we talked earlier about how bridges seem to have like a bit more longevity to them than like houses and stuff houses and and even uh, buildings made out of metal and glass um, that bridges would probably uh, last for a couple of hundred years that their bolts would stay together and mm -hmm. they, would, they would, for the most part, hold up. Although that, uh, that arch-based bridges uh, would last a lot longer than, for example, suspension bridges yeah. because of the, the way that the, I mean, the same way that arches in, have, have held up in old Roman ruins for thousands of years. It sounds generally kind of like we're saying that stone lasts longer than metal. It does indeed. That's yeah. because stone doesn't oxidize the way that metal does, basically. I mean, there's there's a lot of factors involved there, but chemical decomposition of one kind or another, or chemical wearing, I think decomposition is the wrong word, uh, has a lot to do with it. He also did talk about, about stone materials specifically, right? Yeah, he mentions uh, like examples of buildings that he thinks would outlast all of the our traditional metal and glass. He calls them glass boxes, <laughs> uh, which are essentially the kind of skyscrapery buildings like the one we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're recording in right now. Yeah. Uh, so the, it's a metal frame with a bunch of windows. Yeah. 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 yeah uh, that um, old stone buildings would last much longer. So his examples were Grand Central Station and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I could totally see that, having been to Grand Central oh, a man. lot of times. That yeah. actually sounds like a great ruin to visit in the future. Right, so right. You, you go on your adventure tourism trip package to, to ancient Manhattan, <laughs> and everything else is leveled, but there you've got the Met, Grand Central Station, that sounds great. Yeah. With trees yeah. everywhere. I'm sure after a couple hundred years, the food court under Grand Central would be even better than it is now. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a science fact. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, one thing, though, that makes me wonder even about rocks, because, I mean, obviously physical forces can wear down anything over time, though rocks are pretty resilient. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, weathering can over a long, long time knock them down, wear them down, grind them away. But what about chemical reactions? Yeah, so this is one of the things he briefly talks about um, is that, like, we've invented chemical combinations, like, for instance, pollutants or pesticides or industrial chemicals that we use for cleaning or whatever. Mm -hmm. We don't really know how long they're going to last, but they'll probably last a long time, like yeah. maybe longer than those bridges. Yeah, and we don't necessarily know what they're going to do if, if, if they got out into the environment on, I mean, if they were through the water cycle or whatever, yeah. uh, washed into modern buildings. Plastic, so, too. That's yeah. another one. And mm -hmm. his point is that, like, most of these things didn't even exist before World War II. Right. Like, we invented right. them all after that. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, uh, fun, exciting things to discover. Maybe those are the ruined legacies that we'll have in the future is, like, milk bottles. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, so Weissman had a had a, had a timeline. We've already mentioned quite a few things in it where he, he sort of predicted after X number of years this would happen. But uh, there were a few things I think we didn't get to yet. What are they? Uh, well, we talked about how the subway system would flood. He says that would happen within two days. Oh, my mm -hmm. goodness. Can you believe that? Okay. And then after a year, all the street pavement would split and buckle because of the freeze effect that we talked about, the, the thawing. Two, within two to four years, 
all those streets would be filled with weeds because the, there would be plant life growing up out of them, which would subsequently turn into trees, which would upheave the sidewalks and the streets even more and damage the sewers. Yeah, and it's after four years that that thing we mentioned earlier, the freeze-thaw cycle, he predicts after four years that would really cause uh, buildings to begin to crumble because we don't often think about heat as benefiting the building itself. It mm-hmm. just benefits us, but yeah. it actually can benefit the building. Oh, it can help protect the building from the freeze thawing mm-hmm. uh, cycle it would naturally undergo. Well, also certainly anything like a, like like water pipes this is a thing that all of us probably have a little bit of experience with in the winter. Uh, mm-hmm. If you let water freeze in a pipe and then it will burst. That's yep. good times. Yep. Oh, that reminds me. I should have probably left, left my tap on today. Mm. Oh, well. Well, we'll see what happens when I get home. Uh, <laughs> for those pants. of you out there, this is one of the few days of the years in Atlanta where we get below freezing. <laughs> uh, so also then five years. So there's a little bit of dispute here between these. Like these are arbitrary dates, and I don't think that Wiseman has like a a crystal ball that he's looking into, and he knows exactly what they are. Well, I wouldn't call them arbitrary, but they're speculation. Yeah, I mean, they're, yeah, they're they're clever speculation. He's yeah. he's done his research, mm-hmm. but there's a dispute yeah. among other people who've researched this. Educated guesses. So, for instance, he says within five years there would be enough. Uh, growth that a lightning strike could set the city on fire. Other people say like 50 years. I don't know. Five years sounds reasonable to me, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Depend. It's. I mean, it, it all depends on the the location of the strike. Ah, uh, right, so, right. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, you know, you have to take into consideration that Manhattan is not like Tampa, and so there's a relative small amount of thunderstorms there. But but still, yeah, absolutely. After about a hundred years, he says that the roofs of nearly all houses are going to be caved in. Yeah, and of course th- that makes it worse for the frame of the house itself. Oh, uh, right. Then at three hundred, that's when we start losing suspension bridges. The arch bridges last a little bit longer, and then he jumps. <laughs> he goes from three hundred to fifteen thousand plus years. <laughs> That's when the stone buildings, like what we were talking about with uh, Grand Central, uh-huh. those buildings would start to fall because advancing glaciers would close in on New York and yeah, the yeah. Ice Age would begin. That's a good thing to point out because yeah. one of the things we haven't thought all that much about is climate change. So not just the effects of weather yeah. temporarily, mm-hmm. but as the uh, the climate, the long-term climate of the area actually shifts and if you've got New York turning into a more, you know, Ice Age, Arctic kind of environment and you've got glaciers pushing things down, obviously that's going to destroy a bunch of ruins. I mm-hmm. mean, it might leave nothing left. Yeah. And now we've talked about how the theory is that uh, traditional metal and glass buildings reinforced with concrete are not necessarily going to last very long. But he speculates that there is one kind of metal that's going to be around for almost 10 million years. Yeah. And that's bronze particularly bronze sculptures it surprised me but it made me want to look up well okay if bronze is going to be around for 10 million years and and actually retain its shape as he says what are some of the coolest and biggest bronze statues in the world that we will still have that far in the future one i found is the african renaissance monument this looked interesting to me it's a 160 foot or 49 meter bronze statue in dakar senegal and uh, the monument was inaugurated in 2010 and designed by a North Korean firm called the Mansude Art Studio. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, it looks kind of like that Soviet realism okay. sculpture. It's got this very, like, strong, powerful-looking man peering ahead into the future and holding a baby up in the air and holding a, a woman on his other arm. Mm-hmm. And, like, they're pointing up into the future and and the woman is pointing back into the past and it's sort of this thing suggesting a change in in eras i think it's so what kind it, of beautiful and and also kind of propagandistic at the same time yeah so what we're kind of saying here is if you want your legacy to last for at least 10 million years mm-hmm. uh that you know have a bronze statue, bronze statue. built yeah. of you yeah uh i'm sure that's, that's Probably not that expensive. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it makes me think we may have 10 million years yet for the bronze horseman of St. Petersburg, Russia. Right. Uh, that's your next one, right? Yeah. That was on. Uh, it's it for a couple of reasons. Actually, its base is the Thunderstone, which, as far as I know, is still the biggest stone that humans have ever moved. Wow. 
Okay. And then, on, of course, on top, it's got a, uh, a bronze horse and a rider. Also, we're going to have the bronze fawns for a long time. <laughs> Y'all ever seen the bronze fawns? No. No. Look this up. It's in Milwaukee. It's the fawns. Hey, it's bronze. It's a, it's a monument to culture. So, okay, note to self. I either have to have enough money to build a bronze statue of myself or be as famous as Henry Winkler. Yeah. Okay. Okay, one or the other. I can work Get on that. Get to work on it. Yeah. You yeah. know, I'm already starting here. I'm okay. kind of sad that, so we have a bronze fawns. But we don't have bronze statues to the characters Henry Winkler plays in Arrested Development or in Scream. You remember that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I like to think of the bronze fawns as encapsulating all of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably how they meant it. Yeah. Well, in addition to Alan Weissman's speculation, there was some more uh, well-researched speculation from somebody named Bob Holmes, who wrote an article for New Scientist in uh, 2006 about what would happen if humans disappeared from earth now of course we're not imagining humans are going to disappear from earth but that's just a good scenario in which to say what would happen to these yes, buildings if they not, fell into disuse we yeah. are imagining it we're not predicting it so the interesting <laughs> thing about holmes research is that a lot of it overlaps with wiseman's mm -hmm. but there is a couple things in this article that he adds that i think uh, provide some details that weren't necessarily in wiseman's for instance i didn't know this but he says that modern buildings such as the one that we're in right now are typically engineered to only last for 60 years <laughs> oof that is not yeah. much time. Bridges are only designed to last for 120 years nowadays and dams for 250. And, and is that assuming that people are taking care of these structures for that entire time? But uh, that after that, they'll just kind of like shiver and fall apart? No, I should I should make the distinction here that he's not talking about buildings that are receiving constant maintenance. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's more but, comforting. But think but... <laughs> about how many modern buildings just in metropolitan Atlanta that are around that have been abandoned for one reason or another that are probably closing in on 60 years old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They're dangerous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, of course, that is talking about these modern buildings. He also points out, like Weissman, that the ones that are made of stone or concrete are going to be around a lot longer. Like, yep. they could last thousands of years. Yeah. And... So I think that we're we're beginning to form a good picture for the kind of thing we would see in the future. I'd imagine that the future ruins tourist would see lots of strangely punctuated sites because the way cities are laid out now, you might mm -hmm. have an area that has a lot of solid stone buildings and then the next block might have, you know, these modern buildings. Right. And the next block might have houses, you know, for which there's just no trace left at all. They're mm -hmm. wood mm -hmm. or brick houses where the roofs will cave in and the frame will eventually collapse like we've read about here. I'm trying to picture it and I, I, I'm imagining like Manhattan, for example, the one we've been talking about, kind of a flat landscape where many of these buildings are just gone and there's nothing, and then suddenly there are these huge, huge, tall stone monuments mm -hmm. left. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there is research being done into the, the long-time survivability of the kind of things that we're building with today and, and how those structures are going to be impacted by by weather, disuse, or any other number, number of things. And I, it kind of comes down to the quality of of the building which i mean it sounds obvious when you say it out loud but uh but uh, for, for example we put steel bones basically in our concrete buildings because it's a kind of quick and easy way a uh, relatively inexpensive way to to prop up all of this concrete okay mm -hmm. um the, the the problem with that is that if you don't measure and pour and seal everything extremely precisely uh it, when carbon steel is in contact with with air and particularly humid air, which is basically air, uh, it oxidizes. It will begin to rust and begin to warp and bend. It's also more um, more susceptible to heat and cold. Um, and by susceptible, I mean that it, that it shrinks and and uh, and expands more than the concrete surrounding it, which can lead to cracks in the concrete and uh, spalling, which is an industry term for like flaking mm -hmm. of, oh, of that kind of material. Term. Spalling, mm -hmm. I know, right, right. Quit your spalling. Your face is spalling. Wow. 
It's harsh. That's the second old joke you guys have made of me. I'm just it's my first time on the show. It wasn't at you. That was that was at the room in general. Oh, that's I, but oh, that's okay. that's up there with Nanorod, I think, for me in terms of great insults that we've come up with here on Forward Thinking. You Nanorod. You never heard us say that. I mean, I haven't heard you say it, but it sounds bad. <laughs> sounds sounds we'll we'll talk about nanorods later sounds kind of immature frankly Uh, the other question that arises when we're thinking about uh uh the the effects of our human processes on on what would be modern ruins is the question of pollution because especially back in the 80s we heard so much about acid rain and uh and and we still worry on a sort of uh civilization scale about what the pollution that we're creating is is going to do to all of these structures now and into the future and the thing is that we don't really know yay um (laughs) (laughs) i mean because because there's a lot of natural chemical weathering that happens uh you know the thing is is that atoms and compounds do not usually stay the way that we leave them um, all kinds of things happen. Water reacts chemically with basically everything. It's called the universal solvent for a reason. Um, and it's it's also a really good physical carrier of stuff. And what stuff am I talking about? Both natural and man-made dust in the atmosphere made of all kinds of chemicals, uh, bacteria and other microfauna and flora, uh, seeds, um, and, and anything that runs across on the ground, you know, from from natural deposits of salt which is a very corrosive material, mm. um, to whatever minerals or bits and pieces of weird trash that we've left around. So uh, it depends is basically the answer. Yeah, and I would assume, too, based on that, this is a complete assumption not based on research whatsoever, but that uh, cities that are built by the ocean or the sea are going to be more likely to corrode faster because of the amount of salt content that's yeah, they're... yeah. I I think Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Uh, there there's definitely you, you can um see on the outer walls of Hashima mm. the the salt erosion that has happened to the buildings yeah. versus the interior walls. Yeah. So this makes me wonder now that we've sort of imagined this future city as it lies in ruins, how long will it take for even those ruins to disappear? Like ha- have any of these writers speculated on at what point we will see pretty much nothing left. So Holmes thing is he says that it would take a few tens of thousands of years. So that's pretty vague uh, (laughs) uh, at most before every trace of human existence is wiped out. Oh, wow. Um, And his thing is that if alien visitors came here in a hundred thousand years, they would have no obvious signs that we had ever been here. Now I imagine though that would, be talking about on the surface right like they could still dig and excavate there there were parts of it where he talked about that of course yeah like for instance the the pesticides that we were mentioning (laughs) earlier that may in fact last forever that they would be able to dig that stuff up right and they would find a trace of culture and civilization yeah maybe a bronze statue in a milk bottle or something like that right well yeah the bronze statue is going to last for 10 million years so yeah it would probably be buried exactly but it would be under the great wall yeah Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I want to talk about one last thing, and it's, uh, is that thing in Planet of the Apes going to happen to the Statue of Liberty? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. It's it's highly unlikely, given the beach topography that we saw in the first Planet of the I Apes, agree. that that's exactly what would happen to it. I was yeah. like, what is this? That does not look like uh, the, the New York Harbor. Yeah, yeah. Unless maybe the Statue of Liberty floated somewhere. Maybe uh, the apes dragged it as a trophy oh, to a different area. Yeah. No, I do actually want to have one <laughs> final thought here at the end, which is the question of can cities of the past disappear into the cities of the present or the future? Because we, we've we been talking about ruins a lot of times in the context of, of cities and areas being left behind. People either move away or even in these hypothetical scenarios, we just imagine if people disappeared more realistically, uh, people, you know, just migrate to a different area. Right. But a lot of times people continuously inhabit the same areas. You can actually look up. There's a Wikipedia page that's a list of oldest continually inhabited 
cities. Oh, really? So it's just this huge list of settlements that have had people in them for thousands of years continuously. Right, and like human beings, they're just shedding flakes, basically, and (laughs) regenerating over the years, Uh right? Yeah. Yeah. But by constantly inhabiting a single location for hundreds or thousands of years, and you're always making repairs, refurbishing, Mm -hmm. updating, maintaining buildings, and often tearing down old buildings to make space for new ones, are you effectively erasing the static remnants of older versions of the city? Like right. the better we get at maintaining civic infrastructure, the better we get at keeping our cities nice and clean and well repaired and up to date. Are we actually keeping less remains of the older versions of the civilization? I mean, apart from whatever you intentionally preserve in an archaic state. Sure, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, I mean, obviously this taps into the idea of urban renewal, which I think is like a totally different topic that we can't tackle right now. Mm -hmm. But but, uh, the city of Atlanta, where we're at right now, is a fascinating example of what you're talking about. Oh, absolutely. In that there is a constant... uh, Not only restructuring of neighborhoods, but also of just the buildings themselves... Think of, for instance, uh, our, our new home for How Stuff Works is going to be in a building called Pont City Market, which mm-hmm. is was once uh, an old Sears and Roebuck building. Distribution center, yeah. yeah. And then for a number of years, it was a, a branch of City Hall. Right. And then yeah. it sat dormant for a bit. A long time, yeah. yeah. And now and it's now being renewed it's into turned loft and, and office space. Yeah, one of the coolest things about this city, I think, is like that that renewal, the restoration of mm-hmm. old properties. A lot of my favorite restaurants are, are built with like the original brick, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they used to be um, auto garages or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, when that building needs repairs because it's still got a restaurant in it, uh-huh. you might have to replace this wall mm-hmm. or this pillar or at some point maybe even knock it down. It's just in too bad a state. And of course, it's good property. You know, mm-hmm. there, there were businesses mm-hmm. there. So somebody's going to build something on top of it. It's sort of, I imagined it like this it's the difference between doing multiple drafts of a document on a typewriter mm-hmm. where you've got saved copies at each stage uh you could think of that as equivalent to you know building a civilization and then moving away uh versus keeping a document updated in a digital format like you've got a word document and every time you revise it you make changes you edit and then Mm -hmm. you save over what you had before sort of erasing the evidence of the previous drafts yeah i think your metaphor would would work perfectly with paper and pencil, right? If you yeah. had written a document on a single sheet of paper and then you wanted to change something about that document, you erased over it and then you you wrote over that part that you erased, but there would still be slight remnants of the original writing. Yeah, and it makes me wonder which physical civilization disappears faster and more completely. Is it the one that's been abandoned to the elements of the earth and to weathering and all those things we talked about earlier? Or is it the one that's constantly being saved over? Mm. Like, which city is maintained farther into the future? The one we keep living in or the one that we leave behind to nature? From what we've seen of the three examples we talked about, the the island off the coast of uh, Japan, the Chernobyl area, and then the DMZ zone... I mean, I guess I would say that it's those areas that are abandoned because those have only been what's the which one of those is the oldest since there's been human population there. Yeah. And the DMZ is the one that as far as you know Weissman says you can barely tell that human beings mm-hmm. lived and worked there. Well, it was also less structured. I mean, so That's something true. I the the they didn't have like metal uh tall buildings the way that the island did yeah right hashima was actually the site of some of the first concrete skyscrapers that were ever built Mm. so so maybe a better thing to look at would be the difference between ancient cities with stone buildings that were abandoned versus ancient cities with stone buildings that have been continuously inhabited i don't know which the answer is but if you're listening (laughs) and you have an opinion on this why don't you write in and let us know? Yeah, there's a few, way that, few ways that you can get in touch with us. Um, you can email us at fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Google+, Plus, where our handle is fwthinking. Um, you can go to our website, which is fwthinking.com, in order to 
find many podcasts and videos of your potential interest. And But before we sign off here, let's give one big last warm thank you to Christian for joining us on this adventure. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. We've loved having you I on the show, man. I hope that I can live up to Jonathan Strickland's uh, the gravitas. <laughs> I think you have. At, at, at the very least, you've brought the, the baritone voice that we oh. needed into the podcast room. Um, <laughs> where can where can everyone find your work? Uh, mainly on brainstuffshow.com, uh, although I'm more recently writing for our How Stuff Works YouTube channel for uh, the show What the Stuff that we do that Lauren performs on and, and both Lauren and Joe help write with as well. Cool. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, thanks again for listening. We will talk to you all again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council.